Um, today we're thrilled to welcome Judy Garrett from Jewish Relief Network Ukraine. I'm so pleased that Judy is here today so we can learn what her, her organization and the Jewish community is doing to support Ukrainians who have been impacted and displaced since the Russia invasion last year. And I want to especially thank Nancy Mathis for connecting us um, to Judy. So it's truly my pleasure to introduce you to Judy today. Judy Garrett has been leading organizations that help people for more than 30 years. First as a senior executive at the Department of Justice, and now as the chief operating officer of the Jewish Relief Network Ukraine. The organization operates around the clock with staff in Israel, Bulgaria, Russia, and the United States. When one team is sleeping, the other group is hard at work. Judy spent several childhood years in Israel where she learned Hebrew and developed a deep love for, her country, for the country and her fellow Jews. She's honored to work on behalf of the Jews in Ukraine, her, the country her grandfather left when he was just 16 years old. Judy has a law degree from Washington University in St. Louis and a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the mother of six kids. One is here today, thank you for being here, um, and lives in Northern Virginia. So Judy, it's really my pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Lacey. I appreciate that. It's a privilege to be here today. A special thank you to my dear friend, Nancy Mathis, who suggested that the organization I represent may be of interest to your congregation. <clears throat> Please forgive me, I'm going to stay very close to my notes today because I know you are on a tight schedule and I don't want to diverge. Jewish Relief Network Ukraine is the largest boots on the ground Jewish humanitarian, or organization, humanitarian aid organization in Ukraine. We care for 50,000 people each month. <clears throat> We're a new organization, a little more than a year old, but we are rooted in an organization that has been around for more than 30 years called the Federation of Jewish Communities. I'm thrilled to tell you about the work we've been doing over the past 15 months, and I'm honored to share with you some stories of the people that we help. This probably won't surprise you. I generally speak to Jewish audiences. So it's particularly special for me to speak to a different community of faith, especially one that shares so many of our same values and beliefs. I start most speeches with shalom, or privet, which is hello in Russian. <clears throat> Historically, Jews in Ukraine spoke Russian, not Ukrainian. But over the past year, things have changed and many Jews are now using the Ukrainian greeting of Vitayu. I was once asked by a very nice coworker of mine who said, Judy, I know you're Jewish, but what religion are you? <laughs> After I picked my jaw up off the floor <laughs> and bit my tongue, I came up with what I thought was a pretty diplomatic answer. I said, well, while some people think of Jews as a race, a culture, an ethnicity, it's also a religion. Um, as a quick aside, as my son educated me, there was a time about 700 years ago where the Jewish race of Eastern European descent had dwindled down to 350 people. It's pretty shocking, actually. <clears throat> um, but funny enough, that guy had a good point. In Ukraine, the term Jewish is much more descriptive of cultural, ethnic, and racial heritage than it is religion. 
For most Ukrainians, the practice of Judaism is relatively new. That's because after World War II, under communist rule, religion was banned in Ukraine, as it was the rest of the Soviet Union. And this continued until the fall of the Soviet Union. Our work in Ukraine dates back to the early 1990s, right after the Soviet Union dissolved and Ukraine became an independent country. At that time, the leader of an ultra-Orthodox sect of Judaism sent emissaries to Ukraine and other Eastern European countries. A wave of young rabbis and their wives from the United States, Israel, Australia, and the United Kingdom, without any language skills or any local connections, set out to build Jewish communities, literally and figuratively. Over the last 30 years, 40 communities were created all across Ukraine. They were supported by 450 emissaries in every major city, covering small towns, villages, and outlying areas. 80 to 90% of the Jews in Ukraine are connected to these communities, even though the people are not observant or orthodox in their Jewish faith. The Federation of Jewish Communities, that I'll call FJC, was formed to coordinate and fund the many social services and activities in these communities. Before the Russian invasion, there were approximately 150,000 Jews in Ukraine, a country of 42 million people. For context, <clears throat> there were 2.5 million Jews in Ukraine before World War II. The Nazis killed more Jews in Ukraine than they did anywhere else, more than a million men, women, and children. And then after the war ended, about half a million Jews went to Israel. Back to 2022, the Jews of Ukraine were concentrated in four major cities. Kiev, which had about half the Jews in all of Ukraine, Dnipro, Kharkov, and Odessa. <clears throat> and while generally the Jews of Ukraine have been quite poor, some of the Jewish communities were thriving. For example, in Dnipro, a $100 million community center was built with event halls, synagogues, kosher restaurants, and Israeli banks, local branches. Much of the support for this community and other Jewish communities came from Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs, from Americans, and from Europeans, nearly all of whom traced their roots to Ukraine. Just before the invasion in February 2022, Things were going quite well for Jews in Russia and in Ukraine. The relationship between the Jews and Putin was positive, and Zelensky had been elected in Ukraine. Not a bad thing for the Jews. There's an old Yiddish saying, man plans, God laughs. God got a good laugh on February 24th, because in Ukraine, all plans went out the window. Actually, that's not entirely true. Based on rumors of an invasion, the leaders of the Federation of Jewish Communities had been preparing for weeks. They had stockpiled food, mattresses, cash, and water. They had distributed satellite phones to Jewish leaders all around Ukraine. Recent prior experience in wars in the area had shown them that the first thing to go in a war is communications, so the satellite phones were critical. And then as missiles, rockets, and airstrikes hit major cities in Kiev, Kharkov, Odessa, Chernigov, Mariupol, the humanitarian rescue and support operation began. 
Immediately, two hotlines were set up with staff in Israel working around the clock to coordinate relief efforts, identifying who needed help, where, and what kind. In the days following the invasion, FJC moved more than 35,000 people to safety on planes, trains, automobiles, buses, and ambulances. The stories are unbelievable. A family rushing into a synagogue in Kherson, mother, father, two children. <clears throat> they were desperate to escape, had no gas in their vehicle. The rabbi handed over the keys to his minivan and said, take mine and go. It was days before the rabbi was eventually able to flee to safety with his own family. FJC secured 55 buildings, including community centers, synagogues, and schools, where they fed 42,000 people and provided housing to 12,000 people. They rented hotels and apartments in Ukraine and in bordering countries to provide shelter. 950 people were flown to Israel. FJC distributed urgently needed medication to 5,000 people and arranged medical care for thousands more. And that was just the beginning. The cash and cell phones proved invaluable. Many other aid organizations came to FJC for help. <clears throat> they had no cash and there was nothing else that you could use to procure anything in Ukraine. It was truly an incredible time when all the different organizations worked together to ensure no one was left behind. There were two very special rescue operations, orphanages in Odessa and in Zhitomer. Rabbis and staff risked their lives to save hundreds of children. <clears throat> in both instances, the harrowing journeys spanned several days and thousands of miles with babies, toddlers, youngsters, and teens, almost all of whom lacked legal documents. The Odessa orphanage went by bus to Germany, where they were welcomed by the German government and the local Jewish community. <clears throat> the Zhitoma orphanage traveled to Israel by plane and settled in Ashkelon. Today, all the children are thriving, the kids from Odessa are back home after spending a year in Berlin, and the kids from Zhitomer are adjusting to life in Israel. These orphanages are not orphanages like we think of. These are social orphanages, not legal orphanages. The children are not available for adoption. Instead, the kids are there because the mothers were unable to care for them due to drugs, alcohol, mental illness, and sometimes just extreme poverty. The orphanage directors, usually the local rabbi and his wife, take responsibility not only to care for the children, but they also take responsibility for the mothers and help them so that one day they can return the children to the mother's care. So when the orphanages left Ukraine, they took the children and they took the mothers and hundreds of other family members as well. <clears throat> In July, a two-year-old was found wandering the streets of Odessa. His mother had disappeared months earlier, and the father had been gone long before that. <clears throat> Neighbors and an aunt had been caring for the boy. But when the war came to Odessa, the toddler was left to fend for himself. Seeing the child on the street, a woman brought the boy to the synagogue. <clears throat> the rabbi's wife managed to identify the boy. His name was Anton. And she figured out that his four-year-old brother, Daniel, had been at the orphanage for several months. You can imagine the reunion when the boys saw one another. In the early days of the war, the Israeli government gave 
the Federation of Jewish Communities, incredible financial support. In fact, 60% of the aid money from the Israeli government to Ukraine came to FJC. In return, the leaders of FJC, Rabbi Shlomi Pellets in Israel and David Munchine in Russia, had a standing bi-weekly meeting with the Prime Minister in Israel and his staff to share information about what was going on on the ground in Ukraine. <clears throat> it was very hard to know how Ukrainian Jews were going to react to the war, given the opportunity to immigrate to Israel. Under the law of return, anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent and who have not themselves accepted a different religion is permitted to immigrate to Israel and become a citizen. This opportunity extends to their spouses as well. Right after the war, some people did leave for Israel, but most stayed. And believe it or not, some who left have come back. <clears throat> In the first half of 2022, 12,000 people left for Israel as compared to 3,100 Ukrainians who immigrated to Israel in all of 2021. Some of you may be surprised that more Jews did not leave, but consider that men aged 18 to 62 are required to remain in Ukraine to serve in the military. That means that the women would have to leave their sons, husbands, fathers, brothers behind. Also, while Israel is a great country and there is support provided to immigrants, Ukrainian Jews don't generally speak Hebrew and it is a very different culture, let alone the daily realities of jobs and housing. <clears throat> While most Jews stayed in Ukraine, they did not stay in their homes. Today, there are more displaced people in Ukraine than anywhere else in the world. More people out of their homes in Ukraine than anywhere else. In Odessa, at least half of the Jews left. And in Kharkov, most of the 25,000 Jews left. The same is true for other cities like Mariupol. These people hope to return one day, and they hope that their homes are still standing. But in the meantime, they moved to new cities and joined the local Jewish communities. In Lvov, there used to be 600 Jews. Now there are 2,000. In Ivano-Frankivsk, they had 600 Jews. Now, I'm sorry, in Ivano-Frankivsk, they had 150 Jews. Now they have a thousand. And many of the Jewish communities around the country have reported significant increases in, in numbers, even among local residents. It's not surprising that after 15 months of war, people are more anxious than ever for community and spiritual support. I said earlier that JRNU is a new organization with old roots. Within days of the Russian invasion, it became clear to the leaders of the Federation of Jewish Communities that they needed a new identity, a new brand, if you will, if they were going to operate in Ukraine. After all, the FJC logo includes a map of Russia, and the website includes pictures of Putin. <laughs> Additionally, FJC knew they were going to need a lot more money, <clears throat> and they didn't have a ready source. Historically, the oligarchs from Russia and Ukraine who had supported the Jewish communities were no longer available. After the invasion, most of the oligarchs lost everything or had their assets frozen. Desperate for support, these extremely wealthy people ended up going to the rabbi and asking for help themselves. 
They are now quietly and shyly in line at many of our soup kitchens. Fundraising, particularly among American Jews, became a priority. The leaders of FJC created Jewish Relief Network Ukraine, an American 501c3 organization dedicated to represent and at times coordinate the work being done in Ukraine. We have a very small front-end operation with minimal expenses. This allows us to use the money we raise to directly support the Jews of Ukraine. As I say often and truthfully, if someone donates $100 today, tomorrow I can send them a picture of a Ukrainian holding a grocery store voucher for $99.50. On July 14, 2022, I woke up to a WhatsApp message from Tanya, one of my colleagues, a Ukrainian woman who's been living in Bulgaria. In Venitsia, a town in west-central Ukraine, 150 miles from Kiev, a barrage of missiles hit stores, apartments, offices, and even a medical center. Thankfully, the apartment building where Tanya's grandmother, Emma, lived, she is a stubborn 90-year-old widow, it was not hit. <clears throat> but tragically, 20 people died that day in Venitsia, including three children. As first responders cleared the rubble and rescued survivors, Jer and you volunteers set up an aid station at the Jewish Community Center. Hundreds of people came for hot meals, food parcels, and medical support. Emma was not among them. Noting her absence, one of the volunteers jumped in his car, drove to her house, coaxed her out, and brought her back to the community center, where she received a food package and much-needed TLC. When phone service was restored in Venezia, Tanya was thrilled to hear that her grandmother had been well taken care of. Similar stories play out each and every day in communities across Ukraine. In addition to soup kitchens, meal deliveries, and food package distributions, in larger cities we give out grocery store vouchers that allow families to buy the items they need the most. While essential and costly at well over a million dollars a month, Food is just one part of the work that we do. We arrange for medical and mental health care, which is particularly important for the children, whose health and safety has only gotten worse as the war carries on. <clears throat> Masha, a beautiful little red-headed girl from the outskirts of Kherson, was dealt a tough lot in life, even before the war. She was being raised by her single mother in a dilapidated house with no heat and walls covered in peeling paint and mold. Masha often went hungry. No toys and no clothes, other than what she had on her body and what was being on, held uh, dried on the line outdoors. Masha often went hungry, I'm sorry. Outside, things were no better. The streets were filled with alcoholics, drug addicts, and people with nowhere to go. Masha attended the local Jewish school and was well known to local FJC staff. Shortly after the war broke out, we evacuated Masha to Mikolaev, where her grandparents live. While they too struggle to afford food and heat, they offer Masha love and emotional support. FJC and now JRNU coordinators arranged for orthopedic surgeries for Masha, and we continued to provide her food, as well as mental health care and other necessities. 
In the early days of the war, medicine was especially difficult to come by. We partnered with AmeriCares and received three donated containers full of prescription medications and other medical items that we distributed to a local hospital, several clinics, and of course the communities. Thanks to a wonderful organization called Restoring Vision, we have 110,000 pairs of eyeglasses, half prescription and half readers, that we are distributing to Ukrainians. They have been a huge hit. And to help the many, many internally displaced people, we provide housing in apartments, hotels, <clears throat> complete with meal plans, toiletries, clothing, and whatever they need. We host kids' programs, schools, after-school programs, and soon summer camps. We distribute bedding, household item, clothes, shoes, whatever is needed. Last fall, we worked really hard to get kids back to the classrooms. Between COVID and the war, many kids have been home for a very long time. The schools needed repairs, and perhaps even more significantly, we had to renovate and build government-mandated bomb shelters, complete with generators, furniture, food, and water. These weren't places where kids would go for a 15-minute drill like when I was growing up and we had tornado drills. These were places where kids would spend an entire day studying, or sometimes two days. <clears throat> so they had to be like a classroom. On September 1st, the first day of school, which is a Ukrainian national holiday, thousands of kids showed up with colorful new backpacks full of supplies and gifts that we provided. Many of them had spent long nights in bomb shelters and many days in their homes afraid to venture out. Winter was an enormous concern in Ukraine. In most parts of the country, the weather is much more severe than our winters here. You may have seen the reports about the destruction of one-third of all the power stations and the disruption of utilities that left people in the cold and the dark for days on end. Some cities lacked potable water as well. We spent hundreds of dollars to purchase 150 large generators to provide power to community centers, schools, and synagogues, where people gathered for warmth and meals and even lived temporarily. In one city, we had to dig wells to provide safe water. We distributed tens of thousands of winter survival kits containing battery packs, candles, ready-to-eat meals, blankets, and more. We even produced reflector bands that people would wear on their wrists or around their neck <clears throat> so that when they went out at night, in the streets that were pitch black, they were safe walking through the streets. Our connections in Russia through FJC provided very helpful throughout the war. We have been able to provide supplies to cities that were cut off from Ukraine, like Kherson, by coming in from the Russian side. Passover this year was incredible. As was the case for most of the Jewish holidays, rabbis and students came to Ukraine from all around the world. We made sure that every Jew in Ukraine was able to celebrate the holiday of our exodus, and at least for a while, escape the horrors of war. We delivered individual Seder kits and food parcels and conducted 142 community Seders. Just to give you an idea of the volume we brought into Ukraine 61 tons of matzah, 42,000 bottles of grape juice, 100 tons of meat and Seder products, 
and we delivered 18,000 food packages with all eight days' worth of kosher food for Passover. Nancy actually asked me why it was so critical to celebrate this holiday in the midst of a war. One of the most important requirements of Passover is to tell our children of the story of Exodus so that they see themselves as having personally suffered and escaped from Egypt. Each of us as Jews have to internalize the suffering that we have endured and the liberation that we enjoyed. Why? There's a famous Jewish saying, <clears throat> for not only one has risen against us to destroy us. In fact, it seems to happen in every generation. For the people of Ukraine today, celebrating the holiday means a great deal more than gathering for a meal and retelling an ancient tale. Remembering all that we have endured and survived as a people gives us strength and hope that this too shall pass. Summer camps will start soon. Day camps and overnight camps, we expect to have more than 2,000 kids. These are a long-standing tradition in Ukraine and around the world, for they connect Jewish kids with their faith and their community. Like everything else, these camps have special significance for Ukrainian children right now, <clears throat> who so desperately need a break from the war. In addition to the usual recreational and informal education activities and some Jewish stuff, there'll be lots of counseling and emotional support provided. I know I've talked a lot about the support for the Jews of Ukraine, but let me be very clear. We are here not only for the Jews of Ukraine, we're here for the people of Ukraine. We work closely with other humanitarian aid organizations sharing supplies, including food, clothing, household item, and even some of the glasses. On an individual, personal level, we do not ask people their religious affiliation. In the city of Kherson, one of the cities hardest hit by the war, the synagogue has become the address for everyone in need of aid. From a group of stranded Nigerian students who in the first days of the war had no food or water to a little non-Jewish girl recently suffering from juvenile diabetes. The people of Kherson know that the synagogue is the place to go for help. City residents are frequent visitors to the synagogue and the Jewish Community Center where the rabbi distributes food packages, medicine, and all sorts of daily necessities. Just recently, the deputy military governor of Ukraine came to visit the synagogue and see for himself. The crowd outside the building was so large, the governor had to phone the rabbi inside and ask to be escorted in. Well, on that day, $200 vouchers were being distributed to all members of the community who had registered and deemed to be qualified. This was Jews and non-Jews alike. Last total I saw, close to a million dollars had been handed out. And $200 in Ukraine right now is significant. <clears throat> As one local rabbi in Kherson said, from the moment the war broke out, every resident in the city understood that we are the address for assistance. I know many of you, as Lacey said, are involved with helping refugees, and that is such incredibly important work. I truly admire your efforts. I imagine you are drawn to help for different reasons. 
For some of you, undoubtedly, it's related to your faith. The work of our organization, JRNU, is guided by the teachings of a famous rabbi who said, there are three loves, the love of God, the love of the Torah, and the love of one's fellow Jew. They are all dependent on one another. By expressing one of these loves in actual deed, one facilitates the expression of the others until all are ultimately united as one. This is a Jew's mission and purpose. At the start of the war, many organizations came to Ukraine to help, and they did. But many have now left. The war has continued far longer than most anyone expected. We, JRNU, FJC, are here for the duration. We look forward to the end of the war when we will begin rebuilding the Jewish communities and resume our work as a social services network. Let me leave you with this quote from a Ukrainian woman named Victoria. The war is a reminder that you can lose everything from one day to the next. It just isn't worth chasing after material things. It's also a reminder of how important family, friends, and life itself really are. The worst part is that Russia destroyed our past, and we don't know about the future. For us, the future is now. I appreciate you letting me speak to you today. I'm more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Thank you. to answer any questions. There are so many things that we do that I couldn't fit into this. Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, in the beginning, I got the impression that the Ukrainian Jews, Jewish community was not necessarily uh, in attendance at Sabbath services. Has that changed? I mean, you're talking now about synagogues, and synagogue yeah. is a house of worship. Yes. Are they coming or are they not? They are coming. And I'm going to give you just a little bit more of an answer to that. So the rabbi that sent the emissaries to the former Soviet Union, the ultra-Orthodox sect, a term they don't like, is from a group called Lubavitcha. It is the largest ultra-Orthodox sect, also known as Chabad. You may hear it around the world at some points. Their mission is to bring Jews closer to Judaism. So while Jews do not proselytize, in fact, we are forbidden to proselytize, there are groups like Chabad who work very hard to recruit Jews back closer to the faith. And so the strategy is we welcome everybody and we will meet you at your need and help you any way we can. And we hope that subliminally we get into your head and bring you closer. So we work very hard to have events at the synagogue for holidays, for kids programs, to get people to come and then we slowly get them to come to Sabbath services and whatever else we're doing. So there are many more people who are now much closer and are much more participatory in their religious beliefs. So it's working, I think. Yes, sir. Uh, we've read about how the Ukrainian Christian Orthodox Church and the Russian Christian Orthodox Church has ruptured its relationship and there's been hostility there, of course, for obvious reasons. And I wonder if this catastrophe in Ukraine has been an opportunity to sort of build relationships between the uh, Ukrainian Christian Orthodox community and the uh, Ukrainian Jewish community. I thought you were going in a completely different direction. So 
my answer is off. Um, <clears throat> we do work closely with some Christian organizations that, much to my surprise, had been in Ukraine helping Jews particularly for a very long time. And I don't know if the roots in these organizations date back to World War II or if they have later become engaged, but there are a lot of Christian groups in Ukraine we are close to. I'm not familiar enough to know which particular church they belong to. Um, definitely there's some Catholics, but the others, I, I just don't know. I thought you were going to ask about the relationship between Jews in Russia and Jews in Ukraine. So I'm going to give you that answer anyways, even though you didn't ask. Um, it's been a very difficult and challenging issue. So you may know that Israel, for example, doesn't really wade into the war from a militaristic perspective, if that's a word. And that's partly because they want to protect Jews in Russia, and they also have their own geopolitical issues that they have to be concerned about. For the Federation of Jewish Communities, it was also very complicated, and they have followed the model of Israel. So my boss, David Munchine, lives in Russia, has lived there for 30 years. He's an Israeli, was sent to Russia, and has stayed there. He was close to Putin. The Jewish community there has been able to walk this fine line of supporting the Ukrainian brethren, supporting the Jews in Ukraine. Putin knows Rabbi Munchine is leading this organization essentially from Russia, but yet not get into the war. So we never talk about what Putin is doing. We never talk about the war as such. It's a little odd because the people we're helping are harmed because of the war, but we do try to walk that fine line so that Jews in Russia, Jews in Ukraine, Jews in Israel, Jews all over Eastern Europe are all protected and safe and still able to help one another from a humanitarian aid perspective. Yes? Are you able to provide any special services for pregnant women in Ukraine? So we do a lot with mothers. <clears throat> um, there's a particular Jewish organization called Kesher, which means bridge that is very active in Ukraine, working with young women, pregnant mothers, um, and we partner with them and support them, and they have been phenomenal. We often bring mothers into these orphanages and help support them, because particularly with men at war, it's very, very difficult. Um, there are a lot of single mothers in Ukraine. It has been very challenging over the past 30 years um, to support the children and the mothers. So we already had a very strong push to helping mothers and infants, pregnant or otherwise, and have just furthered that with the war. Yeah. Yes? Have you gone over to Ukraine your job capacity? That's a great question. That's a great question. I really want to go, um, and I've been told by that son in the back and my older daughter at home that that's not an option. So um, I really do want to go, and um, I have sent a couple people who really wanted to go, and they were able to, to Odessa, for example. And so I've lived it secondhand, but I haven't been there. Uh, we flew him to Berlin so he could see the orphanage. He then flew into a city I can't think of the name of right now in Poland, drove to the border, got out of the car, walked across the border, got in a car, and drove to Odessa, where he spent a week helping hand out food, talking to the people, going to the orphanage that had been relocated in terms of the kids to Berlin, but still was there serving the community, providing shelter and other things. 
Um, he did a blog, and he would text me every day. So I felt like I was there, but I have not been there. This is a dumb question, but is the Jewish community um, lobbying Putin to end this nonsense? Uh, that's a, a really good question. Um, a really good question. So there have been discussions with Putin, for sure, um, but very delicately. Yes. Early in the war, Putin went after some of the rabbis that he felt were not being sufficiently loyal to him. Really? Which is difficult. Yeah, I mean, there was some pretty horrible situations. Somebody found the head of an animal on their doorstep because Putin believed that they were disloyal to him. So it is a very fine line um, for them to walk. So I don't think that they are able to lobby him, but they are absolutely in touch with people in his administration, and they do speak on behalf of the Jews in Ukraine and the people of Ukraine who need yeah. this war to end. Yeah, for sure. Yes, ma'am. Um, when Lacey said that you have six children, I heard a slight gasp in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, as a lesson to all, I want to know where in your career as a mother did you find the time and how did you get involved in doing this kind of work? That's a great question. Um, so, amongst the people I work with, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, I'm a slacker. They all have eight plus, eight plus. Now I will say that for the most part, the women are home with the kids. So I've kind of done it all. Um, I was very fortunate for the first 30 years of my career that I could have a babysitter at home with my kids from the time I walked out at seven in the morning till the time I walked back at five. Um, before smartphones, it was kind of nice because you were done at five. After the invention of smartphones, it became a little bit more difficult because I felt like I was always on, but also was nice because I could leave the office and still be connected. So it was a balance. I got involved in this work because the Jewish or there's a Jewish organization here in this country called the Aleph Institute that works with prisoners who are Jewish. And in my prior career, I had done a lot of work with them trying to help figure out the right balance between supporting the observance of religion in prison and recognizing that it's still a prison. And so through my relationship with them, when the Ukraine war broke out, they asked me if I would be willing to come work with the larger group in Ukraine. One of those things that I never could have planned in a million years, but being able to work 100% remote has been life-changing. Um, I still have little ones at home, and it has been just absolutely wonderful not to have to dash out the door at 7 and come flying in at you know, 5 o'clock. So it's, it's been a great opportunity to connect much more with the Jewish communities all around the world and to be home, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I don't know if anybody's behind. Um, can I ask about, I'm curious what you said, that some people have you know, left and gone to Israel, some mm -hmm. people have gone to, you know, other European mm -hmm. countries, and then we know many have come to the U.S., Yeah. and also some people have returned. Could you talk a little bit more about that, yeah. um, and the, any way the organizations engage with them? Yeah, um, it was really hard to know what to do after the war. We wanted to help people however they wanted to be helped. So if people wanted to go to Israel, we were getting on, on planes. If they wanted to come to the U.S., that was a longer, slower process because of all the requirements by the United States government. There it was more of a, 
put them somewhere safe while they could see what they could do. We couldn't do much. In Israel, we could do a lot because one of the other leaders of JRNU lives in Israel. So we could facilitate paperwork and it was basically, if you can get to the airport and get on a plane, you're good. We have you at the other end. The problem for the Ukrainians is that um, it's, it's a very tight community culturally, ethnically. And especially for the older generation, it's very hard to pick up and move. So while it's nice to be connected to your Jewish community, those aren't going to be your friends. You don't have a lot of shared experiences. And it was very lonely. And most, most of them did not have family there. And so we tried to help them do what was most comfortable. We set up groups of people in some of the cities in Israel. So a whole group from Odessa would go to a city in Israel, hoping that by having you know, 20 or 30 people and keeping them together for Sabbath services, for events, they could build a new community and make a new home. Even still, it was very difficult. Um, if you don't speak Hebrew, Israel's difficult to navigate. With English, you can get along, but most people speak Russian, some Ukrainian. And I think they just found it very difficult. Never mind, the men were in Ukraine at war. Who knows what's going on with them? And so even though they may be at the front line and you're home in your community, it's a lot closer than being in another country. So a lot of people went back because of their, the men, because they just didn't feel comfortable they were, a lot of people, very lonely, very scared, and when they come to us and say, we want to go back, we do our best to get them back as well. We really try to, um, there was a group recently that asked if we would be willing to be more active in bringing people over, and I said that, you know, we started as an organization because the rabbi sent emissaries to build the Jewish communities there, so while we are very sympathetic to people's individual needs and will help where we can, we also don't want to even give an impression that we are abandoning the Jewish communities. We want to keep those Jewish communities as much as we can if people will want to stay, because hopefully the war is going to end and we want to keep going on the building path that we had been on. Yeah. I'm going to take her first, I know. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to share all these stories with us and oh, thank be you. with us this morning. It's really, um, really helpful to us to you know, have this specific perspective mm -hmm. on a portion of the community in Ukraine. I'm kind of interested in the historical background. There were so many Jewish people living in Ukraine before the Holocaust, yeah. um, the Second World War. Can you give a little bit of background on that? Yeah. <clears throat> so Jews have been in Ukraine since the 10th century, um, a very, very long time, and at times pretty well off. They controlled the money. Um, it wasn't prestigious at that time. That's what they were allowed to do, but it, it, had, it had its advantages. There was a, um, several hundred years where the Jews in Eastern Europe were all pushed to an area called the Pale, which is Ukraine, Poland, um, part of Russia, all on the western part. And so Jews were not allowed to live in most of the parts of Eastern Europe. They were all bunched over there and grew to be very strong communities. Um, they started to spread out over time somewhat. And so by the time of World War II, there were all these people in Ukraine, a very large community. After, uh, so when the Nazis came to Ukraine, it wasn't like when they went to Poland or in Germany. They didn't take them and put them in gas chambers. They just shot them 
and killed them. In fact, on one day in a place called Babi Yar, 30,000 people were killed, just mass graves along the road. So the communities were decimated. After the war, as you can imagine, people were like, we are just out. Israel had just been created for the purpose of welcoming refugees, and so enormous amounts left. There were still probably close to half a million people in Ukraine um, at the end of the 1940s. Slowly, gradually, over time, as they could, they left. It was the former Soviet Union. It was oppressive. Israel was a brand new country created in 1948 uh, as such. So there was excitement, right? People wanted to move. So they went to Israel, and they came here as allowed. So it dwindled and dwindled so that by 2022, there were only 150,000 left. The rabbi that sent the emissaries really wanted to build it up. And so we saw some improvement. Um, some of the communities are doing well. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's going to take a very long time. And I will say that even under Zelensky, it's challenging. A colleague of mine sent me a picture one day on WhatsApp, and he said, take a look at this. And I said, I see a soldier. He said, I'm on the train. I said, I see a soldier with his rucksack across from you. That looks pretty good. He said, no, what should I do? I said, I understand. He said, zoom in on the picture. Well, on the rucksack, embroidered was a swastika. Now, this wasn't a sticker that someone put on there. This was embroidered in the rucksack that the soldier was carrying around the country. So Ukraine is complicated. It's not a Nazi country by any stretch, but it's also not a panacea. Now, that causes people to say, again, why don't they leave? Well, my response to that is, there have been lots of times in this country in my lifetime where I haven't been thrilled with the political leaders, and I haven't been thrilled with some other things going on, and there have been hurricanes and other disasters, but I don't pick up and leave to go to Israel or anywhere else, nor do most other people. People in Ukraine love their community in Ukraine. It doesn't mean they love the government. It doesn't mean they love everything about it. It's their home. So we're hoping that by continuing to strengthen these Jewish communities, we can build back up the Jewish population in Ukraine, understanding it's complicated. And I know my answers are way beyond your questions. This is my way of working in stuff. I had to cut out <laughs> to make my half an hour. I'm sorry, Nancy, you had one question. No, I just said uh, really quickly, I know we're running out of time. So you mentioned the supply side from Russia. Yeah. <laughs> how, how does that work? Yeah, it was actually life-saving because the city of Kherson was cut off to Ukraine. There was no way to get supplies. Other organizations were calling us, major organizations. What can we do? How do we help Jews and non-Jews? They knew we were doing it. And they said, how are you guys able to do this? We didn't really advertise the fact that we have lots of connections all throughout Russia because like Ukraine, there are Jewish communities all around Russia. And so they were able to take from the Russian side tons and tons of supplies of food and clothing and medicine and everything else and slide it across the border. It was remarkable. Um, a lot of corruption in Russia as well as Ukraine and we have these relationships over 30 years with the people at the border, with the police, with the army, with the grocers, with everybody and we were able to leverage those relationships. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah and again we helped non-Jews as well, without advertising it, um, but we certainly try to share with everyone. Yeah. Well, I think with that, thank you so much. Thank you.